Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. At Beth Emanuel, we are proclaiming the vital gospel message of the coming kingdom of heaven. If you share our passion for this message, please support this teaching ministry and messianic community with your prayers and financial contributions. To learn how, click on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. When all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. That's Exodus 20, verses 18 to 19. Now, whose voice did we hear at the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai? The voice of Moses or the voice of God? Well, Exodus 20, verse 1 tells us that God spoke all these words before listing the Ten Commandments. So, it seems straightforward that at Mount Sinai, we heard all the Ten Commandments in God's voice. And this is the interpretation of some of the commentators. On the other hand, that introductory sentence, God spoke all these words, could be a quote from Moses. Perhaps Moses was telling the people, God spoke all these words, meaning that God already gave him the Ten Commandments, and now he's relating God's words to them. After all, Deuteronomy 33, 4 tells us, Torah, Tziva, Lanu, Moshe. Moses commanded us the Torah. Of course, there are not just 10 commandments. How many commandments are there? 613. That includes 248 positive commandments. That's the thou shalt commandments and uh, 365 negative thou shalt not commandments. So, a total of 613 commandments. Now, Hebrew words have numerical values, and they can be very significant. So, what do you think is the numerical value of the word Torah? Well, let's figure it out. Torah is spelled tav, vav, resh, he. So, it starts with tav, that's 400. Then Vav, that's six, so 406. Then Resh, that's 200, so 606. And then Hey, which is five, so 611. Ah, so close to 613 and so unsatisfying. But the sages see significance in this. They explain that Torah is 611. Torah, Tziva Lanu Moshe. Moses commanded us 611 commandments, but the other two, which are actually the first two, God spoke to us directly. You'll notice that the first two commandments are in the first person. God refers to himself as I and me. The first commandment is, I am Hashem your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And the second commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. But from the third commandment on, you shall not take the name of Hashem, your God, in vain. It starts to use the third person. God is no longer called I and me, but now he's called he and him. This supports the idea that we heard God himself speak the first two commandments, but Moses picked it up from there because we told him, you speak to us, 
and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. But wait a second, you might be saying, the first commandment is I am Hashem your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery? That doesn't sound like a commandment. It sounds like a statement, an, an introduction. For that matter, it's very strange. It's a strange way for God to introduce himself. Why didn't he say, I am Hashem who created the universe and created you? He's the God of everything. Why narrow in on that one historical event? It's like me introducing myself and saying, hi, I'm the guy who does Mrs. Eby's taxes. It's not technically incorrect, but it's certainly leaving some critical context out. We can answer the first question right away. I am Hashem, your God, doesn't sound much like a commandment, but it is. It's the commandment to believe. The second commandment, you shall have no other gods, is a ban on idolatry, and it's the flip side to the first commandment. These two commandments are the prototype of all commandments because every time you fulfill a commandment, you declare your faith in God and your rejection of all other powers. A related commandment is what we say in the Shema. Hear, O Israel, Hashem is our God, Hashem is one. It's a commandment to believe that Hashem is one. The command is, Shema, hear. When the Israelites received the covenant at Mount Sinai, they enthusiastically responded, Naaseh v'nishma. We will do and we will hear. That's Exodus 24-7. But what a strange order that is. First they will do and then they will hear. It's commendable that they were willing to obey even without understanding first. But is, is we will do and we will hear the proper order? Maybe we should start our journey with we will do and we keep the practical commandments and perhaps only later we will hear, meaning we will develop a belief that God is one. But uh, despite their enthusiasm, that's not the order that God established. The first two commandments are the commandments of faith. And they're spoken in Hashem's own voice and they belong at the top of the list. But we're still left with the question, why didn't God introduce himself as I am Hashem who created the universe and created you? Why did he identify himself with the exodus from Egypt? Now, a few weeks ago, during the counting of the Omer, I introduced you to a passage from 2 Peter chapter 1, in which Peter outlines a process of spiritual growth. And here's the list once again. It's from 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. He says, For every reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. In verse 11, he describes this process as providing an entrance into the eternal kingdom. That's a big deal. The kingdom is the highest priority of a disciple of our master, Yeshua. So, this list is remarkably useful. 
it's like a roadmap, it, helping us disciples achieve our ultimate goal. It's like a ladder with seven rungs. We noted in our previous discussion that this list begins with faith. But faith is not one of the seven steps. It's the starting line. It's what qualifies a person to even begin the process. Peter brought up the idea of faith in the opening line of this letter. He addressed the letter to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God. And so we asked the question before, how do you obtain faith? And what does it mean for faith to be by the righteousness of God? And I explained the connection to Genesis 15, 6, where it says of Abraham, he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. The Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah, which can also mean a charitable gift. We can thus read this verse from Genesis to mean that Abraham considered his faith to be tzedakah, to be a charitable gift he received from God. And this explains what Peter meant when he addressed his letter to those who obtained faith by the righteousness, that is, by the tzedakah or charity of God. Faith is where we begin our journey. Our life is a pilgrimage. And these seven steps are lights, lights along the way, or, you know, or, or waypoints on our path. They're thresholds for us to cross as we move closer to Devekis, unity with Hashem. Earlier, I, I also shared with you the concept of Musar, an area of Jewish teaching that focuses on personal improvement and spiritual growth. I, I hope you've made some, some steps forward in preparation for Shavuot. I brought up the concept of midot, that is character traits that we identify and we work on, just as you might use certain exercises in a workout program to isolate and focus on a specific muscle or body part. Musar literature often divides up its steps into what we call gates. So imagine a, a city built on a mountain, constructed like a target with walls ringing each section as you ascend closer and closer to the top of the mountain. And that's exactly how the temple was built in Jerusalem. Each time you ascend to the next level, moving inward and upward, you also cross through a gate. One important book of Musar is named Duties of the Heart by Rabbi Bachya ibn Pakuda. And this book lays out a program of 10 gates. Just as Peter's list begins with faith and ends with love, Duties of the Heart begins with faith in the unity of Hashem and ends with love of Hashem. So when I hear the phrase entrance to the eternal kingdom, it makes me think of Psalm 24, especially the verse that says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of, king of glory may come in. And a better translation of ancient doors in this verse is eternal entrances. And I find it likely that Peter had this psalm in mind when he described his program as the entrance to the eternal kingdom. You know, Psalm 24 describes a type of pilgrimage. It asks the question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? And the answer is not everyone. It takes clean hands, a pure heart and proper speech. Peter's ladder has seven steps. Um, 
And that's not surprising in a Jewish context. Have you ever heard of the seven heavens? The sages use the scriptures to identify seven heavens or seven layers of heaven, one above the other. A midrash called Sifrei on Deuteronomy comments on a verse where Moses tells the Israelites that they are like the stars of the heavens, um, quoting from Deuteronomy 1.10. The midrash explains that in paradise, in the Garden of Eden, there are seven castes or ranks of righteous people. And the two highest levels of the righteous, it identifies with Psalm 24, those who ascend the hill of the Lord and those who stand in his holy place. Now, in a similar way, the Rambam identifies the terms hill of the Lord and holy place as euphemisms for the world to come. And, and this is a great reminder that what people call salvation or eternal security is not all that matters. You see, the kingdom is not a place of equality. Our master told us to store up treasures in heaven, implying that this life is your opportunity to invest in your future life. He did not say that in the kingdom there will be neither last nor first. He promised that those who are last in this world will be first in the kingdom. He indicated that some in the kingdom will be called great and some will be called least. Ye Yeshua referred to our journey as the narrow path, meaning not only is it narrow, but it's also a path. We're headed somewhere. We're not just in a holding pattern until God gets around to beaming us up. Our progress depends on the choices that we make in this life. And that's, that's exactly what this life is for. In, in 2 Peter 1, 9, uh, Peter tells us the importance of this list. He says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. In other words, this list is a roadmap that provides clarity about our big picture. It brings guidance to a person who has already been cleansed from former sins, which means you and me. Then in verse 12, Peter explains that these are not mysterious concepts. He said, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. In other words, the entrance to the eternal kingdom is not a scavenger hunt with obscure clues. It's not a spell book with strange and exotic procedures. It's straight up Torah values and ideas that you've already heard. But he says, I'm not going to stop reminding you. It's one thing to know in your head, but we're aiming to achieve a level where these concepts gain a constant presence in our conscious minds so that they impact our day-to-day -day lives. And so this requires meditation, rehearsal, intentionality, and self-accounting. There's one more important factor that we have to learn from this list. Turn back to verse 8. He says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our master, Yeshua the Messiah. N notice how he says, yours and increasing. The path uh, and the latter imagery that I presented before make you view the false impression that that 
the, the, these qualities must appear in, in an exact order. That you can't move uh, to step two until you've mastered step one. And that's not true. In fact, we aim to climb this ladder every day, building on our faith with all seven steps. And day by day, we seek to improve each one of these dimensions of our spiritual lives. So, don't feel like you have to master one step before proceeding to the next. But this list does have one important aspect of sequence, and that is the starting point, faith. It may not be one of the steps itself, but as the starting point, it's it's important to understand and to analyze. The Greek word in this letter for faith is pistis, and, and that's the standard Greek representation of the Hebrew word emunah. Emunah is not the same thing as belief. Because be- belief just means that you hold a fact to be true. It, it, it means that you agree with a premise. But emunah is not just belief. It means faith or faithfulness. It, it encapsulates fidelity, trust, reliance, trustworthiness, loyalty, and allegiance. Emunah is even something that God has with us and not just that we have with him. Now, clearly, belief is a prerequisite since if you don't even acknowledge that something exists or is true, there's there's no way for you to maintain faithfulness to it. Now, the, the book of Hebrews gives us an introduction to the concept of Emunah in this familiar passage from the beginning of Hebrews 11. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Okay, so in what sense is faith the assurance of things hoped for? Does that define faith as just accepting doctrinal statements as true, even though they can't be proved? We'll get to that in a little bit. But in any case, the passage tells us that our faith leads us to accept that God alone, by his word, caused the existence of the entire universe. Now, the the Rambam enumerated the 613 commandments, and um, nobody can quite explain why he put them in the order that he did. But I, I find it interesting that he began with the commandments to believe in Hashem and to know his unity. Uh, let me read for you um, how the Chofetz Chaim expressed these commandments in his book, The Concise Book of Mitzvot. It says, number one, it is a positive commandment to believe that there is a God in existence, as scripture states, I am Hashem, your God. And he, be he blessed and exalted, brought all existing entities into being in all the worlds by his power and blessed wish. It is he who watches over everything. This is the foundation of our faith. And whoever does not believe this denies the very main principle, the one and only God. And he has no share or right among the Jewish people. We are duty-bound to be ready to give our life and our might and main for this belief. The main thing, though, is to fix firmly in one's heart and soul that this is the truth and that nothing other than this is possible. This applies at every occasion and moment for both man and woman. 
You know, people often point out that Judaism is more focused on action and, and peoplehood than doctrines. Nonetheless, belief in God is non-negotiable, and, and any Jewish movements that would eliminate that requirement exclude themselves from legitimate Jewish categories. And, and yet, simply believing in a, that a God of some kind exists it still, still falls short of the requirement. As I brought up before, we must obey what Yeshua called the first commandment, and that's the Shema. The Chofetz Chaim explains, number two, it is a positive commandment to know the unity of the blessed God, to believe with complete faith that he is one, without any partner or associate, as scripture states, Hear, O Israel, Hashem is our God, Hashem is one, Deuteronomy 6.4. This is a main principle of our faith. After the first knowledge that there is a God in existence, it's necessary to believe with a complete faith that he is simply, utterly one in the utmost degree of unity. He's not a physical being. No concepts about a physical being can apply to him. Nothing that can affect a, a physical being can affect him. There is none second like to him, and without him, there is no God. We are duty-bound to bear this belief in mind at every occasion and moment, both man and woman. Well, what the, the, the oneness of God means is that everything in our physical experience is a creation and not the creator. God invented the idea of physical things, the idea of space and time and matter, the idea of math and physics and logic, the idea of having ideas or existing. None of those things precedes or can define God. And while he uses our physical world and our perceptions to interact with us, we have to bear in mind that his oneness transcends all those experiences. But belief alone still does not constitute faith in the biblical sense. And I guarantee you that there were no atheists at the foot of Mount Sinai. So there must be more to I am Hashem your God than thou shalt accept that I exist. To help us understand the, the fundamental idea of Imuna, let's look at a source called Kad Kemach by Rabbeinu Bachia bin Asher. Now, this work is a bit like an encyclopedia of Musar and Jewish thought. It's dating to about the 14th century. His very first entry, and that might just because it's alphabetical, is Emuna. He, he begins by quoting Isaiah 26, verse 2. Open the gates and let the righteous nation that keeps faith enter. The essence of Torah and the commandments is faith. For one who lacks faith, it would be better had they not been created. This commandment is dependent upon the heart, and it is that one must believe that the world has a singular creator who oversees the lowly world, including humanity as a whole and each individual in particular. Now, did you pick up on what Rabbeinu Bachia added? It's not just that God exists and is one, but that he oversees the lowly world, including all humanity and every single human, okay? So, he continues, this belief serves to dispel the hearts of those who 
deny, sin against, and rebel against the Blessed Holy One, proclaiming that divine providence does not extend any lower than the moon's orbit. Okay, Rabbeinu Bacha is, is contrasting between true faith and the false idea that God exists but does not involve himself with humanity. You know, the, the moon is the closest celestial body, so it, it kind of defines the border between heaven and earth. And, and these deniers claim that God never crosses that boundary to interact with humanity. Rabbeinu Bachia continues, This was the opinion of Job when suffering befell him, and his friend Eliphaz then said to him in Job 22, verses 13 to 15, But you say, what does God know? Can he judge through the deep darkness? Thick clouds veil him so that he does not see, and he walks on the vault of heaven. Will you keep to the old way that wicked men have trod? So, thus, the prophets constantly remind us of divine providence, explaining it clearly. This is what the, the prophet Jeremiah explained, Jeremiah 32, 19. Hashem is great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. Ah, so according to Rabbeinu Bachia, belief that God exists is not enough. The essence of Imuna is to believe that God involves himself with humanity, ultimately rewarding righteousness and punishing wickedness. And this is a major theme of the Bible, that while it might seem like the righteous go unrewarded and the wicked go unpunished, this is an illusion. Faith requires you to believe that God directly involves himself paying each person the wages of his actions, both good and bad. In Matthew uh, 16, verse 27, Yeshua promises, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Paul explains that at the day of wrath, Hashem will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. That's in, in Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. So, I could go on and on. That with examples from both the Tanakh and the New Testament. But the bottom line is that our faith requires us to acknowledge that God rewards good works and punishes wickedness. And, and people talk about salvation through faith and not by works. But ironically, the biblical definition of faith is belief that God will repay you for your works. And and that, that it's worthwhile for you to serve him because there is a reward. And so, our book of Hebrews continues its definition of faith by teaching us in Hebrews eleven six: Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And thus, this is what Hebrews mean by, means by the, the assurance of things not seen. 
What's not seen right now is the reward of the righteous. Faith requires us to trust that God is a faithful employer and will pay the wages for our work. Now we can understand why God introduced himself as who brought you out of Egypt. God didn't need to tell us that he existed. He's telling us that he's intimately involved in this world and in our lives. The Svas Emes, who is a Hasidic commentator, explains that the redemption of the Jewish people from Egypt was a greater act than that of creation itself. You know, it's, it's nice to know our backstory, but the fact that a God created us does not provide us with any more assurance about how our lives will pan out. But through the Exodus, says the Svasemis, God proved that not only did he create the universe, but he involves himself in it and cares deeply about each one of us. So, according to the Svasemis, this plays into the understanding of the oneness of Hashem. Yes, God transcends everything in nature, but because Hashem is one, every detail of the universe is a direct result of God's continual renewal of creation at every moment. And the Exodus is one great example. So, the Svasemis explains that even though the Israelites said, we will do first and then we will hear, God recognized that they would not be able to sustain this approach. Instead, we must first accept upon ourselves the yoke of the kingdom of heaven, like we do when we say the Shema, and only then can we move on to the yoke of the mitzvot? And that's the second paragraph of the Shema that says, it will be if you listen carefully. Faith in God's intervention is the basis for our faith in the Messiah. When God said, I am the Lord who took you out from Egypt, he identified himself as the God who redeems. And this is why in the first blessing of the Amidah, we establish our faith in Hashem, our God and God of our fathers, who brings a redeemer to their children's children. Faith means aligning with this purpose of Hashem to be willing participants in redemption. And there are some movements that identify themselves as a type of Judaism, but deny that Hashem plays a direct role in revelation and redemption. They, they deny that a Messiah will ever come. But this stands in direct opposition to faith as defined in the Hebrew scriptures. In, in our messianic tradition, we have a statement from Paul in Romans 10.4 that uh, gets often misinterpreted. It's, he said, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. You know, this does not mean that righteousness used to come by keeping the Torah, but but Jesus ended that. No, no, what he's saying is that Messiah and redemption is the end goal, the whole point of the Torah. You can't say, I want the Torah and commandments, but I don't want the Messiah and redemption. And this is the error that Paul is confronting in Romans 9 and 10. The Messiah is the point of the Torah. It means that God intervenes in the whole human story. It's not I am Hashem, your God, who created the world. It's I am Hashem who took you out from Egypt. I redeem, I intervene. 
the Torah is aiming at a target. And that target is the redemption of humanity. And Messiah is how that happens. Messiah is the end goal of the Torah. Faith is not a binary state, you know, something you either have or you don't. It's a process. Yeshua referred to some of his disciples as you of little faith. And he re recommended that they have faith like a mustard seed. You know, that's faith that grows and develops from something small into something prolific and expansive. Every experience that we have, every test we endure is an opportunity for faith to grow and develop. And this is the process that God took Abraham through, one test after another. And that means that even if you have emunah, chances are there is room for it to grow. Having perfect emunah would not just mean recognizing God's existence, but having awareness of his involvement with every detail and every moment of your life. Such faith would uh, produce intense fear of God and also profound love of God to the point that the thought of sin would never cross your mind. And, and that's why faith is so foundational. Torah, Tziva Lanu Moshe. Moses taught us the Torah. 611 in the voice of Moses and two commandments of faith in the voice of Hashem himself. The Gemara goes on to tell us that King David boiled those 613 commandments down to 11. And Isaiah summarized them in six. Micah distilled them down to three, and the prophet Habakkuk encapsulated all 613 commandments in one statement. The righteous shall live by his faith, by his emunah. That's Habakkuk 2.4. If emunah is the foundation of our spiritual growth, then increasing our emunah gives us a larger base from which to build upward. How do you increase your emunah? Well, people go about this the wrong way. It, you see, it's not about apologetics proving the Bible correct. That's not going to in increase your faith. It's not about philosophical exercises that logically deduce the existence of the creator. Both of those tactics have their place. And it, they may even strengthen your belief, but not your emunah. Remember, the essence of emunah is expressed in the first commandment, I am Hashem, your God, who took you out from Egypt. To increase your emunah, you must increase your awareness that Hashem is here with you right now and at every moment. So here are some practical strategies to help you with this. Number one, express gratitude. Give Hashem explicit verbal credit when he comes through for you in the small things as well as in the big things. You know, say your brachas. Every time you have something to eat, every time you go to the bathroom, after you go to the bathroom, pause, concentrate, say the bracha, the blessing, with clear, deliberate words and with controlled and, and intentional thought. Recognize that everything that you have comes from him, your success, your health, your intelligence, even your faith is tzedakah from Hashem. So thank him for it. The second way to build imuna is to reflect. At the end of your day, uh, before you say the bedtime shema, take a few minutes to review and to think back 
on the events that took place. Try to see those events from Hashem's perspective as a loving father who wants nothing more than to see you succeed and grow. You know, before you light Shabbat candles, uh, reflect on your week and the ways that Hashem came through for you when you needed him. Pause, uh, take time and reflect. Now, the, th the third method for building Imuna is the most important. Talk to Hashem. It's one thing to pray the Amidah three times a day, to enter a dedicated prayer space and, and say the Shema morning and evening or to recite Psalms. And those are important. But to build your Imuna, you, you have to just talk to him. Acknowledge his presence, not at, at just those high points, but throughout your daily routine. Tell him how you're feeling, what concerns you have, how much you appreciate him, what you're curious about even the littlest of things. Set aside time for dedicated, solitary, conversational meditation, also known as hisbodedis or hitbodedut. But even in the hustle and bustle, keep the communication open. You know, if people look at you funny in the grocery store, just, uh, just touch your earbuds and lean into it. You know, we have it easier today than ever before. Psalm 16 says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. Imagine that. <laughs> I shall not be shaken. As we approach this holy and auspicious day of the festival of Shavuot, of Shavuos, I want to bless you in the name of our holy master Yeshua, the King of Israel, and the agent of God's redemption. Just as Shavuot is the day of the revelation at Mount Sinai when, when God forced heaven to unite itself with earth, that he should reveal himself in your heart. And may the verse be fulfilled in you that says, in the words of Isaiah 57, 15, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Chag Sameach. Take on my yoke and learn from me and find rest for your soul. 